I'm Sarah. Um, I'm the somewhat newly installed executive director here at Forefront. Um, thank you. Uh, if I may say that people applaud, so I wonder, like, wow, everyone's new here. Um, but I, um, and, and all pronouns are okay with me. And for those of you new, welcome. I think Jen Chris's mom, Nancy, is here. Just want to say a shout out to her. Thank you for being here. There you go. Um, and you know, for those of you new, maybe like Nancy or other people, you might be looking at me and be like, well, this person was kind of young to be an executive director. And I definitely understand. You know, you might be thinking like, wow, I knew this church was progressive, but I didn't know they'd hire like a 15-year-old boy to do this job. <laughs> uh, you know, you got to ask Jonathan why he did that. But um, uh, you know, unlike what TSA thinks, I am I am older than 15. Um, and then we can discuss gender in another sermon. But I, I, I want to spend this sermon um, particularly focused on allyship and kind of what it means to be an ally and all that stuff. Uh, you know, as like a queer person, I'm very grateful for my cis straight allies here in this church. And as a person of color, I'm very grateful also for Akin, the leadership of um, white people in the church. Actually, I'm grateful particularly for Jonathan. We are trying to launch this kind of justice and organizing team. And I think in some churches, those teams would be relegated to kind of the sidelines. Like, here's a cute project. Let's put the people of color on it and they can work on it. Um, in this case, Jonathan's actually like leading the charge on it. Um, so it's very central to his priorities. And that's one of the reasons why I kind of took the job. Um, and I think as a person myself, I also you know, try to be an ally to um, people who experience anti-black racism, people who are not documented, people who are differently abled. I think you know, on many sides, we are allies to others, and we are sometimes people are allies to us. And I think a common mindset that for those of us who you know, think of ourselves as progressive, perhaps well-intended allies, is, is that we have this particular kind of mindset, which is, as an ally, I'm supposed to kind of cheer you on from the sidelines, support you on your issue, on your cause, and your struggle. And you know, when there's maybe a discussion of racism, and let's, let's say I'm white, and I'm just going to shut up and listen and learn because this is not my issue, this is not my struggle, and I just want to learn. Or let's say there's a fundraiser for an LGBTQ center, and I'm going to donate, but I'm not going to intend. I don't want to take up space because it's not my cause, it's not my struggle. And I think in general, we have a tendency to try to differentiate between groups of people and honor kind of the unique material differences in each person's and group's experience. And I think that's really important. I think there is definitely a need to have spaces for just queer people or just people of color. And there are very real material differences between the lives of sort of poor black trans women and rich, you know, cis straight white men. Um, but I do want to probe a kind of assumption in that mindset, which is that the, as allies, the issues that we are helping out, helping to fight for, are not related to our issues and our struggles. So to take, you know, queer people, for instance, the struggles that queer people engaged in are separate, are divorced from the struggles that cis and straight people engage in. And I don't know if that's quite true. Um, and I think we can think about historically, but even just kind of contemporarily. When I think about what queer liberation is, for instance, it's a lot about questioning the assumptions we have around family, gender, love, and intimacy. Um, you know, let's say the assumption that man is the traditional breadwinner, and then there's a wife who has to be the caretaker. That's an assumption that I think for a lot of queer couples, obviously we have to question because that's not clear who the man, who the, uh, who the husband, who the wife is gonna be. And so we kind of write our own scripts. You know, we write our own roles. And what I think we discover is that the new scripts we write are helpful not just to our community, but also to cis and straight people outside of the community as well. 
So here's an example. I have two very good friends, um, both straight, cis, and the, when the wife, uh, husband and wife duo, I want, uh, my friend who's a woman who was pregnant, she wanted to find advice from like blogs and parenting blogs on how to help her husband feel as physically and emotionally connected to the baby she was carrying there and then. Not just because they both wanted it, but also because he would become the primary caretaker for the child because his job was a lot more flexible than hers. But she could not really find any resources or tips within kind of like parenting or straight mommy blogs. Um, can you guess like where she may, what blog she may have found some advice in? This is only really to three people in the congregation, but the Autostraddle, which is kind of the number one queer woman um, site in, you know, in America, basically. And uh, I think she went there because, you know, this kind of traditional parenting blocks, uh, blogs that she did, did not kind of, were following a particular script that her family was not following. And so she had to turn to the queer community, basically, for resources. And her husband is now taking care of their kid. They moved from New York to Texas. It's kind of sad, actually, because he, is trying to find like parenting groups to do like play dates and stuff with, and they're only mom's groups. And he'll email them and be like, "Can I join? I'm a dad," and no one will respond to him. Um, you know, he doesn't fit their script of what a man or husband is supposed to do, and so he's basically kind of like isolated. Um, so this is always to say that I want to submit to you the idea that the constructs and ideas we built around gender, family, love, intimacy are not just hurtful for queer people; they also hurt, I think, everyone. Um, and the classic example I think of when I think of within how this kind of plays out in my family is my grandmother, who's kind of the matriarch on my dad's side. She is sort of worshipped and revered by all five of her children because she worked three jobs, basically, to support her kids and put them through school, send them to very good universities in Malaysia. And she was a full-time um, public school teacher in Chinese school, actually. And then at night, she would sew and sell uh, school uniforms to stores. And on the weekends, she started and ran a distribution business for anchovies, or kind of ikan bilis, um, as you would say in Sarawak, the state I'm from. So she had this killer business acumen. I mean, she was making money. She was doing all. I mean, she was pulling all-nighters every week. Um, but on paper, she was just a teacher because her husband was the businessman. He ran a wholesale clothing store, but he was like really bad at it. He would let his like brothers run it and they would steal money from it. And you know, he was basically like just breaking even um, with the store. By all means, his wife should have really taken over the business, but that wouldn't look right, that wouldn't feel right, that wouldn't follow the script. So she had to start two additional businesses to make up for his like lack of business skills. And, so, I mean, today we worship her as a hero, like, you know, grandma, wow, amazing you did all that. But as I got older, I sort of realized, like, she didn't have to be a hero. Um, she's 81 years old now, but she looks much older than she is. She's aged way more, I think, way more because of patriarchy. Um, but, you know, to her, in her mind, that's not patriarchy, it's just life. And she is a very cute old lady, and she somewhat kind of accepts my relationship with my partner. 
And it's kind of as good as an ally as you can be when you're an 81-year-old Chinese grandma. Um, but, you know, she, she struggles. Uh, you know, I'll call her on FaceTime, and she'll be like, okay, still with the girl? I was like, yes. Um, it has been like seven years. And, you know, she'll say things like, you know, I just don't understand. One woman, one at night, what do you do? And, and, and then in the Mandarin, it'll be something like, I'm going to butcher this, but like, like, and I was like, okay, you know, Grandma, even if I could respond in Mandarin, I don't want to have this conversation. Uh, and, but if I, let's say, was, you know, miraculously fluent in Mandarin, I would say, Grandma, I think, oh, darn. Um, you, you faced so much, like, unnecessary hardship in your life, and that was because you had this body that people said was female, and they gave you the script based on your body. You know, men ran businesses, and you had cute teacher jobs, and that sucked. And I think when I face, you know, homophobia, stuff like that, it's a similar kind of struggle. I have this body that people say is female, and they give me the script. And if I don't follow it, I will be penalized for being incorrectly female. And I think that's what you had to face, too, like what it meant. You were facing the judgment of being incorrectly female. Um, and so, I know, Grandma, you hate my haircut, but that's, it's the same thing, don't you see? Um, you know, our Australia struggles are kind of connected when my, say, trans siblings show up, can go to bathrooms at work or can go to public bathrooms because they where people poli police them for being incorrectly male, incorrectly female, incorrectly fitting into a gender box. It's the same struggle that we're fighting just on different fronts. But, you know, I can't really say all this to my grandma for a million reasons, so I'm just going to talk to you all. Uh, <laughs> And I'm, I'm gonna issue kind of a challenge. I'm gonna ask you all to maybe consider to quit being allies and to be comrades or co-conspirators instead in this fight for justice. And this language, if you're curious, you can just Google it, ally versus co-conspirator, ally versus comrade. It's, it's language I'm kind of borrowing from like a larger movement. But, in, and I've talked about it mostly in the context of LGBTQ and sort of feminism, but it applies to like race, legal status, class, what have you. And I'm going to talk about, I'm going to pivot a little bit, but just so you know, for those of you who are newer, this is the last sermon in our Becoming series, which is during the season of Epiphany. And they were talking about things that we want to quit in order to fully become and live into the life that Christ has called us to. And I kind of believe that if we quit thinking of ourselves just as allies and we move towards working together as comrades, as co-conspirators, we will move closer to kind of ushering the next sort of 500 years of Christianity that we talk about on stage. And so here is how I'm going to kind of define the difference. Being an ally, in my opinion, is about helping someone out of the generosity of your heart. It's because you want to be a good person, you want to be charitable, you want to be sympathetic, so I'm going to help. Being a comrade or co-conspirator definitely involves that, but it's also about helping because you understand that your liberation is linked to someone else's, and that unless all of us are free, none of us are free. And so in that case, helping, so to speak, is not just like a nice benevolent gesture you make. It's actually a necessity that you do for yourself and for other people. And if this feels a bit abstract and it's going over your head a little bit, just bear with me. I'm going to give you another concrete example, this time from the Bible, in the book of Exodus in particular. So the Israelites, um, at this point in the Exodus that I'm going to start in, have been living in Egypt for generations. They're not originally from there, but they've settled there for generations. Maybe like fourth, fifth generation, no one really knows. Um, 
and you know, their kids or their grandkids because they are born in Egypt, they speak Egyptian, they're kind of culturally, I would say, probably very, very well adapted. And then this new king comes onto power, and he starts looking at this population and starts thinking, what if they grow to outnumber us and we become a minority in our own country? And who are these Jews really loyal to anyway? Like, if there's a war, would they side with us or would they side with the enemy? And I don't have time to get into this, but you can probably are familiar with this logic and in the news we read today from a current administration. And so what this king decides to do is he decides to enslave the Israelites. And they're enslaved for about 400 years. And just as a frame of reference, Europeans and Africans came onto this country about 400 years ago. So it's a long time. And according to the biblical narrative, narrative, the Israelites are treated very badly. Here it is. Therefore they, the Egyptians, set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pitam and Ramses for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed upon them. So you fast forward a little bit, kind of throw in some 12 plagues and Moses, and finally the king decides to let the enslaved peoples go. So they leave Egypt in a haste, but before they do that, they make one request of their Egyptian neighbors and sort of former masters. Here's the request. The Israelites had done as Moses told them. They had asked the Egyptians for jewelry of silver and gold and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. And so they plundered the Egyptians. It's actually kind of extraordinary. The Egyptians are sort of going along with whatever requests um, their Israelite neighbors, so like former slaves or workers are asking them, just like giving it to them. We're not quite sure why. Um, perhaps some of them were scared of the God of the Israelites and were like, we don't want another plague, just take my gold, please leave. Um, maybe some of them were like, saw that as allies. So like, you know, I'm sympathetic to your cause, like you've been mistreated, here, have some stuff. So, but regardless, you have scared or sympathetic allies, but I would kind of classify them as one group. There's a second group, which is sort of embedded in the next passage which we'll read, the Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot, about 600,000 men on foot besides children. A mixed multitude also went up with them and livestock in great numbers, both flocks and herds. Now who is this mixed multitude, which in Hebrew translates to Erev Rav, um, and it, it does not translate to that as the original, is the English translation. But in any case, commentators believe that this mixed multitude does not refer to Israelites, because if so, why would you have a kind of separate sentence for them? Why would you have the word also? And the belief, um, Jewish commentators really believe that it's most likely Egyptians who are leaving with us Israelites, and they're coming from various kind of groups and clans, and they most likely are the Egyptians who are sort of at the bottom of society. Um, maybe it was just like one rung or one step above the enslaved peoples, and so maybe they were afraid, shoot, if the slaves leave, what, we're next, you know, like we're gonna be the very bottom and we don't want that. Um, but to maybe have a more like some charitable interpretation, maybe some of these Egyptians who are kind of at the bottom were listening to their Jewish neighbors talk about why they wanted freedom, why the system was unfair. And maybe a part of them also thought, hey, this kind of resonates with me too. I, I think this kind of applies differently, but still related to my family as well. So unlike kind of what you might think from the Bible and popular interpretation, the Israelites did not build the pyramids, they um, sort of 
Pharaoh and the kind of ruling elites hired workers all over Egypt to kind of build the pyramids. And the workers were not slaves, they were paid, but they were not treated very well, at least not treated consistently well. In around 12th century BC, we have evidence of workers staging a sit-in in one of the temples until they are paid their payment of grain. And so obviously they're treated better than slaves, but they are certainly still at the bottom of a larger system in which kind of the elites live luxurious lives, they get to sit comfortably while other people work and make religious offerings. And so the way I'm thinking is maybe some of these kind of Egyptians join some of the Israelites to form this mixed multitude because they realize, hey, the system that is forcibly extracting labor from me is also kind of doing the same to me. And maybe they're joining because they want to take a risk and join forces with enslaved peoples to pursue liberation together as comrades because they realize that our liberation is collectively and intimately intertwined. And this, I, you know, just to emphasize it, is a pretty big risk. The first group of Egyptians, they gave up the gold and the silver and the clothing that, you know, that's, that's a lot to give. Um, you know, arguably it's just reparations for all the labor. Um, but this second group are doing much more because as soon as they kind of join the fight, they become enemies of the state. They're risking their lives and their bodies, and as soon as a mixed multitude and Israel slave, Pharaoh sends his army after them. So they are, go through this trajectory from sympathy to empathy, from ally to comrade, from let me help liberate you to like we need to liberate all of us together. It's a kind of powerful movement um, towards collective liberation. And I think we see it in pockets in the Bible, but also in our history in this country. The most pivotal example of that is Bacon's Rebellion in 1676, Virginia. Not the most, but one of the most prominent examples. Um, how many of you are familiar, I'm curious, with this kind of historical event? Okay, one, four, five, cool. Um, and and it, it is kind of narrated in different ways, but at least the way I, I really came to understand it, and I think a lot of history is a race to understand it, is that it's such an important event to understand the creation of race in America. So before 1676, the Chesapeake kind of society, Virginia and like nearby states, was a society that was like, had hierarchy for sure, but not necessarily defined by race. You had Native Americans, people of African and European descent working together, marrying together. You had black landowners and black slaves. You had white landowners and white indentured servants. Indentured servants are interesting because they are, this is similar to a lot of, um, nowadays this narrative you're familiar from immigrants from Fujian in China coming to America or other parts, but a similar setup where you um, are given a free passage across an ocean in exchange for seven years of servitude. Um, and at the end of the seven years, and you were not paid anything, just room board, I guess, um, you might be given some wages, a piece of land, what have you. And obviously, in many ways, that's certainly better than slavery, but most of indentured servants would die before the seven years. They were treated so poorly because it was in the incentive of their masters to just like basically squeeze as much labor as you can out of them. And if they die, then you don't have to give them anything. So it kind of works out. And in this context, only people who owned land could vote. It didn't matter if you're white, you could not vote. So now that we know all this, let's talk about Bacon's rebellion. He's some kind of English-British dude named Nathaniel Bacon. And he's a little arrogant and he's like, let me just lead an insurrection against the British government. He organizes white indentured servants and black indentured servants and slaves together to overthrow the British government. It does not work. Like, you know, England sends some troops, like basically everyone's executed. Uh, they do take over some land, but ultimately it fails. And I think it would just kind of just be like a blip in history if it weren't for the fact 
that sort of the white ruling elites start to freak out. Because when they, when they look back on the incident, they think, okay, this guy was able to get white indentured servants and black servants and slaves together to unite against us. This mixed multitude was coming together. And these people outnumber us. If they do it again and they have like a little better planning, we could lose everything. So what they do is they pass a kind of divide and conquer strategy. They pass a law that makes it, that makes it for the first time illegal for European women to marry non-European men. So separating blood and families. They passed laws saying that if you're an African descent and you were born here but your parent was a slave, you were a slave too, meaning for the first time slavery is an inheritable condition. And they start shifting their workforce from European servants, which were like the most of their workforce, towards African labor. They passed laws making it legal for the first time for white men, regardless of land, title, to be able to vote. And they passed the same laws making it illegal for native and African men to not only not be able to vote, but to also not be able to hold land, hold public office, to gather in public places, to own weapons, and to testify against a white person. So you see how in these laws, both slavery and freedom are created kind of in the same moment. And this, this strategy basically pays off. Before this kind of incident, the main, major distinction between people, as one historian puts it, is, is maybe religious. You know, are you Protestant, are you Catholic, are, are you a different religion, or nationality? You know, are you uh, Irish, Spanish, Moroccan, what have you? Now, the distinction becomes, are you white or not? What is the color of your skin? And what was previously a mixed multitude gets segmented into white and non-white segments. And so this is why this is one of the seminal moments in the historical invention of race. So white indentured servants, I mentioned earlier, paid off, start to now feel superior to their black kind of counterparts because all of a sudden they see they have these freedoms and these perks and these privileges that, they, that others don't have and they're too focused on how they're superior to recognize that they're still really poor. They're too distracted in making sure they have an advantage over one group of people to ask, wait, who benefits from the system? Who benefits from creating these kinds of divisions, which is the people at the top who benefit the most and who really are overseeing this kind of larger orchestrated oppression? And this dynamic plays out in so many ways even today. So I want you to take a two, five seconds. I want to ask you to think of someone who receives public welfare. Food stamps, housing, what image comes to mind? And you might be thinking of a black woman, the kind of so-called welfare queen or the kind of stereotype of black people, particularly women who are lazy, dependent on public housing, dependent on government assistance. That was really the result of a campaign that started in the 1960s to sort of demonize um, welfare recipients. Or maybe you're thinking of uh, a Latino immigrant or just another immigrant who's kind of sucking the coffers of our nation um, due to the kind of the rhetoric of the current administration, which actually last Friday, um, Supreme Court recently upheld the, pu the public charge rule, which basically makes it almost impossible for legal immigrants to receive permanent residency if they are, quote, likely at any time to receive public welfare. So these racist stereotypes, whether it's like welfare queen stereotypes or this kind of like um, welfare sucking immigrants, um, are really effective. They've convinced like many white Americans to decrease the support of welfare over a period of time. So a pair of Berkeley and Stanford researchers ran a couple experiments and they sort of concluded something that I think most of us sort of knew, which is that white people are much less likely to support welfare if they know that black and Latino people are going to benefit from them. So the experiment, one experiment they had was they showed a group of participants various statistics about how 
America was going to be a majority non-white country in 2050, or statistics about how the income gap between white people and black and Latino people would decrease, was decreasing over time. And then they would ask them, um, do you support welfare programs or not? And what they found was that white participants who were shown those statistics were much more likely to, have, to vote for cutting millions more dollars from welfare programs. Does anyone know the actual statistics of who receives welfare? Feel free to shout it out. I don't know. Yeah, so in 2016, um, the recent stats I pulled up, 43% of, uh, of beneficiaries of Medicaid were white, 18% black, 30% Hispanic. Food stamps, a similar kind of breakdown. So here's the question we have to ask. Like, who benefits from racist images of welfare queens or sort of welfare-sucking immigrants? Who, who benefits, essentially, when we divide people at the bottom and sort of pit them against each other? It's not the large number of white people on welfare. I mean, yes, they are definitely racist, but they don't actually really benefit from the system that is actually uh, hurting their economic interests. And so we have to, I think, figure out how do we place our scrutiny on who is really doing, who is really benefiting the most, which is usually the people with the most money and power, the people at the top. And so this current system, I think, is why as Christians, the story of Exodus is super important. And as Americans, the story of Bacon's Rebellion is super important. Because I think they give us a glimpse, even if distorted, as to what uh, it looks like to unite across identities and backgrounds and come together as a quote-unquote mixed multitude and engage in a shared struggle to fight together as comrades and solidarity. To kind of move beyond just, I'll give you some silver and gold, I'm gonna help you in the sidelines, to like, I'm gonna jump into the fray, I'm gonna risk my life and my body as well, make some sacrifices, because I see that this work is important to me as well. Libby Watson is an indigenous Australian who does a lot of work in Aboriginal studies and activism. And I forgot to mention this, but Bacon's Rebellion is certainly, I don't want to romanticize it. it one of the things it led to was a slaughter of many Native Americans. And we can talk about that in a different sermon, um, how having an enemy unites different people groups. Um, so that said, but to go back to what Libby Watson um, is famous for, she's famous for a lot of different things, but she's also most famous for this quote. If you have come to help me, you are wasting your time. But if you have come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. So here is something concrete you can do. Uh, as Jonathan mentioned, in a few weeks, we're launching various small groups on the second week of March. And we have two groups in particular dedicated to us discussing um, race. So one group for people of color to discuss decolonization and white supremacy, and one group for white people to discuss decolonization and white supremacy. And these groups are separate for good reason, but I, what I hope is that as the conversations start happening, as the workers start being engaged, that these groups will start to see how the works are linked to one another and how you know, liberation is something that is equal concern to both people, even if it has slightly different stakes for different people. And so you can sign up for them by, I think Jonathan mentioned, you write your name on the Connect card and give it to me or put it, give it to the connector in the lobby or in the offering box, it'll come out later. So just think about that. Here's also another concrete thing you can do right now, or in the next 10 minutes. Um, in the Christian tradition, particularly, the church is analogized to the body of Christ. And the head of the body is Jesus Christ. So, you know, I'm an a leg, you're an arm, that kind of thing. Um, and that comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 
Here it is, Paul writing, For in the one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Indeed, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. There are many members, and yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So in a little bit, we'll have an offering come out, and then we'll be taking communion together, just open to anyone. And as we line up to take the bread and juice, which in our tradition is the body and blood of Christ, I want you to take a step back and look at who's lining up with you, who's standing up and getting up. And the people who stand up might look really different from you. You might not even like some of the people who are standing up. But I encourage you to just look at him and think, you are now my brother and sister and sibling in Christ, because by taking this blood, quote unquote, this body of Christ, I am now linked to you. We are a new blood family. We are a new body. And your liberation is bound up with mine, and my liberation is bound up with yours. So I cannot say to you, I don't need you. I'm self-sufficent. We are, whether you like it or not, kind of bound together as a mixed multitude, as a new family, within these walls, but also without. We'll close this in prayer. Dear God, may you um, lift, pour out your spirit upon this church, upon this society and this world, that we may see all the ways in which we are intimately linked together, that our unity may cause us to press in with more empathy for our differences, and that we may find the true and new identity in you. Amen.